Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. George Orwell, 1984. History is the version of past events that people have decided to agree upon. Napoleon Bonaparte. There are no facts, only interpretations. Friedrich Nietzsche. Greetings, friends and fellow travelers, salutations to all of you, my colleagues, cronies, comrades, compatriots, consorts, companions, and co-conspirators. CJ here, Anarchy's smooth operator, your one-man revolution guerrilla scholar warrior and renaissance man, doing my best to stand firm and calm as a rock at the precipice, in the face of, this ever-darkening new dark age, in which we seem to find ourselves, doing my utmost as your humble hazardous history helmsman, to tend this little light of mine, despite the storm brewing outside my DHPHQ bunker. Two hundred episodes. And that's not counting the bonus episodes, which at this recording would add another 25 to that. 200 episodes over almost six years. Since it'll officially be six years of me doing the Dangerous History Podcast in just a couple of months. Can you believe it? I'm not sure if I do. But I guess I have no choice. I don't want to know how many hours total of DHP that amounts to. And I really don't want to know how many hours I've poured of my soul and energy and life into this thing. It's definitely been a labor of love, and it continues to be that still. But even so, I would never, ever want to calculate that total. Because if I did, despite myself, I'd be tempted to look at just the monetary compensation alone that I've received from this and then ask questions very pessimistically about whether I should just throw in the towel and, I don't know, go sell insurance or some other shit I don't care about at all, but that undoubtedly probably pays a lot better per hour, all things considered. But in relative terms of comparative advantage, I think I'm better at this than I am at most other things I could be doing with this time, and I care more about it 
than most other things I might be doing with my labor. To those of you who've been with me from the beginning, and to those of you who've been with me for a long time, but maybe not quite since the inception, welcome back as always. I'm glad you're still here. And I hope that you're just as glad that I'm still here. And if you're a relative newcomer, or even a complete rookie, to listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, welcome to you too. I've been doing this thing for 200 episodes and almost six years, so I hope that gives me some sort of credibility when I say I don't intend to pod fade anytime soon. Whether the zombie apocalypse ends up hitting us all full blast or not, wherever it is that we all end up landing on the spectrum that runs from shit hit the fan to the end of the world as we know it, if the power grid and the internet are still functioning, at least a lot of the time, and I'm still alive and able to talk into a microphone, I am going to keep the DHP trucking along. When I was approaching the kind of mid to high 190s in episode numbers, I started to think about what I might want to do for the nice round number of 200. And eventually I concluded that I wanted to kind of take a step back and get a bit meta that I would share with you the current state of my thinking on an important question that gets surprisingly rarely asked and addressed in any real depth. And that question is, what is history? And also to try and take a stab at a variety of questions that flow from that question, such as, is objective history possible? And, If objective history isn't possible, does that mean that we're just lost in completely rudderless subjectivity and that no history can claim to be superior to any other history? And so on. Questions like that. And that I would put forth a concept that I've been working on in my mind for at least the past few years. A concept I call honest history. As the ultimate goal. As the ultimate ideal for which I strive in my own work. And I'll just say this at the outset, and I may reiterate it, almost undoubtedly I will, later in this episode, we'll see. But anyway, that all of what I'm saying here is provisional, as I think all truths and theories ultimately must be. These are all a continuing work in process, but these are my deep thoughts. As of this recording, on these big, deep, meta sorts of questions. So, to start this journey off the reservation and into shark-infested waters and many, many other mixed metaphors, first, we have to talk a bit about what history really is before we can ultimately zero our way in on what I mean when I say honest history. Some of this is going to overlap with the bonus episode I did about two and a half years ago, bonus episode 15 to be precise, which was called Thoughts on Ideology and History, Part 1. Interestingly, as of this recording, I still haven't made a part two to that, so you could potentially compare it to Mel Brooks's excellent film, History of the World, Part 1, for which a part two was never made nor even intended. That might be a reasonable theory on your part, but 
for me in this bonus episode I'm referring to, a part two was intended and still is intended eventually. There are still more things I want to read up on in relation to that topic and still more things I want to work out and ponder before I attempt the part two for that bonus episode. But anyway, to those of you who are DHP supporters who've listened to and can remember that bonus episode, some of what I'm going to say here in episode 200 will sound familiar. But definitely there'll be a lot of other things that I'm going to get into here that I didn't there. Because while I'm going to start off this discussion from a similar starting point as that bonus episode, my ultimate destination here is going to be something I don't think I articulated in that episode. Because I don't think at that time I had quite worked it out to the degree I have now. And that, again, is this concept I've been sketching out in my own mind, and even in some of my introductory lectures at my day job. A concept that I'm calling honest history. So anyway, I guess that's enough burying of the lead, I suppose. Let's go ahead and get rolling. We'll begin at point A. What is history? So that eventually we can end up at point Z. What is honest history? But we have to start at the beginning because if we don't have a valid notion of what history is in the first place, then whatever conception we might have of quote-unquote honest history will probably be all kinds of muddled, jumbled, and contradictory. So, what is history? One of my favorite works of modern art is a piece whose original French name I won't even try to pronounce. The English translation, though, is The Treachery of Images. You can just Google it up and find it. Also, if you go to the show notes for this episode, which will be profcj.org slash ep200, and scroll down to the bottom of those show notes, you will find a picture of it in a gallery of a few other images that are also going to be referenced in this episode. This oil painting was done by a Belgian surrealist artist named René Magritte. Now, look at this picture and ask yourself, what is it? If you don't know the quote-unquote punchline of this work of art, you might instantly reflexively answer, it's a pipe. Now, let me tell you what the words say along the bottom of the paper, underneath the pipe. Translated from the French, those words say, this is not a pipe. Now, some of you who aren't familiar with this work and what that's supposed to mean may be thinking, what are you talking about? That's actually a rather realistic depiction of a pipe. Maybe not quite HD photo quality, but it's not some kind of weird jumbled up Picasso depiction. It's clearly a pipe. That is a pipe. It even has some nice shadowing and highlights to look three-dimensional and so on. But of course, that isn't a pipe. It's a depiction of a pipe. And while that might seem like kind of smart-ass semantic hair-splitting, it's actually a very crucial distinction to think about. The artist Rene Magritte said himself of this work, which I think is probably his most famous, quote, The famous pipe. How people reproached me for it. And yet, could you stuff my pipe? No. It's just a representation, is it not? So if I had written on my picture, this is a pipe, I'd have been lying. End quote. 
So the key takeaway here is that a depiction of a thing is not and never is the same as the thing itself. And again, while that might superficially sound like word games, it's actually a really important distinction. So walking it back to history, here's a really crucial distinction you need to really see and think about in terms of its implications. History isn't the past. It's a depiction of something that happened in the past. This is the same kind of crucial distinction described by that famous phrase, the map is not the territory. By the way, I only recently found out the origin of that phrase. It actually comes from an early 20th century Polish-American intellectual named Alfred Korzybski. Interestingly, when I started to look just a little bit into some of his ideas, I found that some of his ideas regarding things like reality and the limits and nature of our understanding of it actually run very close to what I'd been coming up with independently in my own thinking for many years before I ever heard of this guy. So it is interesting when you come across a thinker who had already worked out something kind of similar to something you had done completely independently in your own mind. So anyway, in my mind, to simplify things somewhat with an analogy, history is to the past what a map is to the territory. Now, I happen to believe that there is, to take the map analogy, I happen to believe that there is such a thing as an objective territory that exists some piece of land that a map is trying to represent. But there never can be any such thing as a completely accurate or completely objective map. Because maps must always contain simplifications, omissions, distortions, and various editorial choices. Things like, what projection are you using? Because, of course, remember that flat maps always have some distortions caused by the fact that you're depicting the surface of a sphere, the Earth, on a flat medium. Other things like, are you showing roads or not? Population density? Elevation? Rainfall? Political jurisdictions? Cities and towns? Of what size? And any of countless other variables and characteristics, etc., no map can show all these things in regard to a given territory. A map that contained no simplifications, no omissions, etc. would be, in practical terms, totally impossible to make. And even if you could make it, it would be useless from a functional standpoint. So all maps must have some important differences from the territory that they're depicting. That said, some maps may correspond more closely to the territory than others. Some may be more or less detailed than others, and some may be more or less useful than others for particular purposes. So, for example, a road map is very helpful if you're trying to navigate driving in a particular place. But a road map is not very helpful if you're trying to learn about differences in elevation or precipitation patterns in a particular place. So if you look at the featured image for the show notes for this episode, which again, you can find at profcj.org slash EP200, you'll notice a map of Florida. 
This map is also contained in the image gallery at the bottom of the show notes page, too. And the map of Florida I'm talking about here is the cartoonish map, mostly designed, we would presume, to make the state attractive to tourists. Now, obviously, if you know anything about Florida history, this map must be from the mid-20th century at the latest, because, among other things, it has no reference to Disney World. Now, think about this map as a depiction of the territory that we call Florida. What can we say about it? Is it, quote-unquote, objectively true? That's not as easy of a question to answer as you might at first think. I mean, probably everyone realizes that in real life, there's not a big cartoon sun located in the northeastern corner of Florida. And there's probably not a gigantic cartoonish alligator the size of several counties lounging in the panhandle. And so on and so forth. In other words, if you take that map totally literally, it's false or something like that, right? But most people would have the sense to know, based on the style of it, that it's not to be taken literally. But even moving beyond those sorts of obvious things, I can tell you just eyeballing it, and I'm sure a real cartographer could give you exact details, that even setting aside all the cartoony little pictures, the geography itself doesn't appear to be all correctly proportional to scale. For example, the panhandle in that map is depicted as being proportionately much too short relative to the length of the peninsula. And there might be reasons for that having to do with the real purpose of this map. Now that said, the tourism map is not entirely divorced from reality. While some of the proportions are off, the rough shape of the state is basically there in terms of the landmass. Most of the contours of the coastline are basically correct. The locations of the cities that are on the map are basically in the right spots, and Lake Okeechobee is in the right place, all that sort of stuff. You know, it's not way off base. It's not like it's depicting Florida as a big rectangle. It's not telling you that Miami is where Pensacola is supposed to be and so on. So it's not entirely disconnected from reality in its representation. It's not complete bullshit. But it's also got some obvious artistic licenses and flourishes that serve a specific purpose. And that definitely shouldn't be accepted literally and at face value. And the main purpose of this depiction of this map is not, say, to help you to accurately navigate around the state's roads. By contrast, you can look at just a straight-up road map of Florida, like the one I've also put in the gallery at the bottom of the show notes for this episode, and compare that to the tourism map. The road map certainly appears to be much more accurate as to things like proportions and scale. It's got more detail. It contains none of the artistic cartoonish flourishes of the tourism map. And it contains a ton of additional information that is not on the tourism map. Like, for example, the road map obviously contains rather detailed info on at least all of the major roads in the state. So here's a claim, an argument from me for you to ponder. Most mainstream and popular American history, as taught in the U.S. anyway, and by taught, I don't just mean in the schools, but also as presented 
in things like popular history books and shows and movies. Most mainstream and popular American history is basically the equivalent of that cheesy tourism map of Florida. So it's not completely untethered from anything real, but it's not something a sane or reasonable grown-up adult person ought to be taking literally at face value as quote-unquote the truth with a capital T, or even something that should be seen as a reasonably accurate depiction of a piece of reality in any depth or detail. It's something that, like the tourism map, is clearly designed for a specific purpose. Of course, the problem is that while most reasonably intelligent people would look at the tourism map of Florida and immediately recognize its main purpose, i.e. attracting tourists to the state, and whether consciously or not would immediately take into account the limitations of this map, unfortunately far fewer reasonably intelligent people will do the same thing with mainstream coverage of history. In the case of the touristy map of Florida, it's obviously designed first and foremost to make the state look attractive and cool to potential tourists and maybe even potential movers. In the case of most mainstream U.S. history coverage, a big meta-purpose clearly is some version of nationalism and support for existing systems and institutions. Now, they may be arguing in the process of doing some history for some sort of reform, but it's ultimately usually fundamentally conservative in some way or another. You know, they might be willing to say there are some bad things about the American system or there have been some bad leaders or whatever, but there's never in mainstream coverage any fundamental questioning, let alone rejecting, of existing institutions, particularly of power. And think about this. What if the vast majority of people in Florida were taught from the age of four or five that the cartoony tourism map of Florida was, number one, objectively the truth, and number two, that if you questioned, criticized, or doubted any of that truth, you were a bad Floridian who hates Florida and hates freedom. Do you see what I'm saying? I hope I don't have to bludgeon you anymore with the implications of this particular analogy for you to get what I'm saying. Now, I'll throw another curve at you. Even the much more quote-unquote serious roadmap of Florida has its limitations. There are things not shown on that map that do exist in the actual territory, such as many of the smaller roads, and towns that are too small and or too close to bigger towns to have made the cut to be depicted on the map, things like that. Even with no kind of ulterior motive and nothing but the best intention on the part of the cartographer to be as accurate as possible in making that roadmap, there had to be simplifications and omissions. Judgment calls made, even just for the sake of being able to depict a landmass of over 65,000 square miles on a map that can fit on a computer screen or that can be printed up on a piece of paper compact enough that you can fold it up and stick it in your glove box and that also won't completely overwhelm you with too much detail. So again, think about this applied to history. 
Would it ever be possible to write a book about a particular topic or event or person or war or whatever it is that actually contains all the information about everything that actually happened in that topic? Of course not. Of course there are going to be editorial judgment calls, simplifications, omissions. Back to the roadmap. Furthermore, since this is first and foremost a roadmap, it doesn't have all kinds of information of other sorts that relate to that territory, but that don't pertain to the purpose of being a roadmap, meaning it tells you nothing explicitly about population density, although you could probably infer it from the road pattern, sure, but it doesn't explicitly show population density. It also doesn't show you changes in elevation from place to place, not that that's that dramatic in Florida, but still. There are some slight differences from here to there. It doesn't tell you anything about precipitation patterns throughout the state, etc. In other words, there's all kinds of other information you might be interested in about the state of Florida that even a very accurate roadmap is not going to tell you. Because if you started layering all that other information on top of an already complicated roadmap, it would very quickly become so blurred and buried with information and detail that it would become useless pretty quick. So in general, some simplifications and omissions have to be made just to keep the thing manageable and useful. And some simplifications, omissions, etc. have to be made in order to help the thing serve its purpose better. So let's change metaphors for a moment. Suppose you gave three different photographers the task to take a photograph of the same subject. Let's say it's a tree. You tell them all to take a photo of the same tree. Now, most people who've never really thought about or studied or done photography might have a simplistic notion that a camera simply gives an objective recording and depiction of reality. But anyone who's studied or done or even thought about photography at all quickly realizes that's total bullshit. There are literally countless variables. How you frame a shot, angle, focus, background versus foreground, all the different settings on the camera, etc., etc., etc. All these countless variables that photographers are going to make different judgment calls on, some of them conscious, some of them subconscious even when they're shooting the same subject. And the results of all this is that you're going to end up with dramatically different photos. Two or three different photographers can shoot the same exact subject and give you very, very different impressions of what it is you're looking at, what's really going on. They'll give you different emotional reactions. And again, these are depictions of the same subject. So getting back to our hypothetical. Let's say you try to control as many variables as you can. Let's say you even give your three photographers the exact same model of camera, and you make them all use all the exact same settings on it, and you have them all shoot the same tree at the same time of day. So you're controlling a lot of the important variables. But still, you're inevitably going to end up with three very different photos. And even with all those variables controlled, you still might end up with photos that are so different from each other that you might not even be able to tell they were actually of the same tree 
if you didn't know that they were. So the point is, creating a depiction of a thing always involves so many variables and so many choices, some conscious and some not, on the part of the one creating the depiction, that it's inevitable that there are going to be significant variances in depictions done by different people of the same subject. And that's, of course, not even factoring in that in real life, a lot of the time, one of the most important choices you're making early on is, what is it that I'm going to depict in the first place? Brett Finot, by the way, often uses a similar analogy with filmmaking. That if, for example, you were to give three different film directors the exact same script, and you told them all to shoot that scene based on that script, and then edit it together, again, based on that script, you would, of course, end up with three very different film scenes that might potentially give you very different impressions of what's really going on. And since film has even more variables and moving parts than still photography, if anything, the difference between these three film scenes would be even more dramatic and pronounced than the differences between still photographs taken by three different photographers of the same subject. So likewise, if you gave three different historians the same basic collection of facts or primary sources and told them to take that raw information and put it together into one coherent essay or book or whatever, you'd inevitably end up with strikingly different end results from one to the next. And again, that's even when you're controlling a lot of the real variables that would actually be operating in real life. Variables like, what subject are you choosing to look into in the first place? And what sources are you choosing to consult to do that? And to relate it back to the map-making analogy, history has some additional characteristics that make it even more complex and tricky than map-making in terms of trying to construct a depiction of a thing. And three of the biggest ones that occur in my mind are, first, history is about trying to depict things that already happened, meaning events and situations that did exist earlier in time but that no longer exist in the present. Therefore, you're always going to run into limitations of available sources of information that were A, created to begin with, and then B, that have survived physically into the present. And then you've got to grapple with C, potential questions about the accuracy and completeness of those sources that were created and that survived. Secondly, history is always strongly impacted by the beliefs and worldview of those making it. And in turn, once it is constructed, history often then strongly impacts the beliefs of others who consume it. And third, because of the point I just made, history has always been a useful tool in the hands of those who hold power in the present and who wish to manipulate people's beliefs in a way to benefit their interests. Remember the Orwell quote from 1984, from the beginning of the episode. In fact, the earliest historians that one finds, once quote-unquote civilization arises among humanity, are always the so-called court historians. The ones who are writing down the great deeds and triumphs of the pharaohs and the emperors and what have you. 
So all of these things, and probably many more we could come up with, make history even more complicated in terms of the relationship of the depiction and the thing being depicted than even something as complex as map making. Now, before we start getting into the question of objective history versus honest history, I want to introduce my three-level model of knowledge that I use in thinking about history, and that I think could probably be applied to most or possibly even all fields of knowledge. And the three levels that I think in terms of are fact, truth, and meaning. So let's start with the lowest level, fact. And here's the dictionary definition of the sense in which I'm using the word fact in this context. Quote, a piece of information presented as having objective reality. End quote. Facts are specific data points that can, at least in principle, maybe not always in practice, but at least in principle, assuming there are solid sources available on them, they can be confirmed or disconfirmed with a relatively high degree of certainty. What year did World War II start in Europe? Right? Something like that. That you can find a pretty trustworthy, clear-cut answer to. People can't reasonably disagree with facts without looking like some combination of stupid and or dishonest and or crazy to other people who are informed on the topic. So to give a specific example, one could accumulate a collection of facts about a topic. Let's say World War II. Specific pieces of objective information about names, dates, events, battles, etc., etc. Okay, fine. But if history stays at the level of fact merely, and never rises above that, it's not much more than a timeline. Perhaps a timeline with an accompanying list of key names and terms. It's relatively isolated and atomized trivia. It's not very useful. It's not very interesting. And unless you're just someone with a photographic memory, you're unlikely to retain much if it stays at that level. And this is where history stays for most of the institutional schooling that most people receive on the subject. And no wonder most people don't find it interesting. And no wonder most people don't retain much of it. In any realm of knowledge, if you stay at level one, fact, you just have a jumble of disconnected trivia points, which are of very limited usefulness if you never figure out how to fit them together and how they relate to each other. It would be like if you learned a la carte a bunch of random chords on guitar, but you had no concept of how they could be arranged into different songs and how they relate to other chords and how they relate to different notes and scales, etc. And of course, in that scenario, it's unlikely you'd remember any of those chords for very long. Your attention would be extremely low. Whereas if you learn a bunch of chords while also learning songs that use them, and maybe also learning a little bit of music theory about how those chords relate together and how notes and scales and chords interrelate with each other, odds are you're going to remember a lot more of those chords that you're learning. 
And I think a big part of why most people don't remember most of what they learn in institutional schooling, not just in history, but in most subjects, is because it's frequently taught as just a disorienting jumble of unrelated atomized factoids. So that's level one. Fact, it's absolutely necessary, but it's not sufficient to have any real depth of thought or understanding or knowledge about anything. The next level up is truth. The dictionary definition of the word truth that best fits my usage of it in this context is, quote, a judgment, proposition, or idea that is accepted as true. The body of true statements and propositions. The property, as of a statement, of being in accord with fact or reality. End quote. So the way I think about it is, we're abstracting a level up, or zooming the lens a little further out from fact. We're trying to put together a bigger picture and begin to identify patterns and relationships. Here things become relatively inherently less objective than with facts because you're abstracting out another level and you're starting to do more actual constructing. This is where things like theories and values and ideologies and a number of other variables begin to enter the equation. It is possible for reasonable, informed, intellectually honest people to agree on a set of facts while disagreeing in some way on what, if any, are the larger or deeper truth or truths that can be extracted or constructed based on those facts. And one's own values and ideology must inevitably begin to enter into the equation at this level with virtually any area of knowledge, I would imagine, but certainly with history. Now, getting back to our example of World War II, truth would be when you take a pile of facts and you begin to put them together, figure out how they relate to each other, begin to put together sort of sub-narratives, particular stories or events or aspects of the war, and then from there perhaps begin to sketch out a larger picture or narrative of the war. And in history, what I'm calling truth here is the level when questions of things like cause and effect begin to enter into the equation, which are always tricky questions that oftentimes don't have an absolute definitive final answer. But you're starting to look into questions of cause and effect. So you're not just saying, oh, here's this battle at this date and this side won. Now you're trying to figure out why. Why did that battle happen? Why did it play out the way it did? Right? So we're looking at causes, and then we're looking at effects. What were the effects of that battle going forward in time after it? So that's level two, truth. And then level three is going to be meaning. This is when you're starting to get more philosophical, introspective, and of course, more big picture. The dictionary definition of my usage of the word in this sense is as follows, quote, Significant quality, especially implication of a hidden or special significance, end quote. So here we're looking at the deeper significance that you come away with 
based on your perception and understanding of a set of truths, which are in turn based upon a much larger collection of specific facts about a topic. So you're looking at even bigger picture examples of causes and effects, like, for example, why did World War II happen? Why did it play out the way it did? What were some of its most significant effects on subsequent world events? But at the level of meaning, you're also looking at the question of overall significance. What does World War II really mean or signify in the larger picture of whatever? Human history, U.S. history, some other country's history, etc. So, I think this three-level way of looking at history that I'm proposing here can probably be mapped onto most, if not all, areas of human knowledge in some way. So, like, for example, as I alluded to earlier, if you're a musician, fact would be particular techniques, chords, scales, rhythms, etc. Truth would be learning whole songs that put these things into action, and in which these quote-unquote facts relate to each other and are put together into a coherent piece. Meaning might be a bunch of different things, but it could be when you start to reach a level of musicianship where you're transcending particular songs, and you're looking at your instrument and music itself in a deep way, and you're seeing the patterns that I don't know how to put this, or perhaps above, or behind, or beyond the patterns. In martial arts, fact would be specific moves and techniques. Truth would be when you start to really deeply understand the bigger principles that are manifested in those specific techniques. And meaning might be something like what you're getting as a human being from the journey and from overcoming adversity and learning how to handle yourself, and developing a sense of self-efficacy, and some sort of balanced sense of life, and a better philosophy on life, or who knows what. Now, to me, the real value and significance of any realm of knowledge is always going to be found mostly at levels two and three. Level one is necessary, but levels two and three is where things really get significant and where they really matter. So to me, real history, history that matters, lives in levels two and three. It lives in truth and meaning. Most people, though, who don't either go through a good advanced history education at the university level, or who don't autodidact out on a deeper level on the topic, think history is all about level one. Just the facts. Let the facts speak for themselves. All those kind of bullshit sayings. And yes, if you're paying attention, I did use autodidact as a verb a moment ago. That happened. But high-level history is mostly levels two and three. Because high-level history is mostly about arguments. Generally related to things that have to do with truth and meaning. And only rarely are theses or arguments related to simple facts. Now, if you don't know, in an academic or intellectual context, the word argument has a different meaning 
than when we just use it colloquially to kind of refer to, you know, a heated disagreement with someone. The meaning of argument in an academic context, in which it is a synonym usually with the word thesis, is something like a proposition or claim about something that reasonable, informed people might potentially disagree about. So a thesis or an argument can't be a simple statement of an indisputably true fact, because then there's not even the possibility that reasonable, informed people might disagree about it. The Axis powers lost World War II is not a thesis. Reasonable, informed people can't disagree over that. The Axis powers lost World War II primarily because of the economic and industrial capability of the Allies, rather than military factors on the battlefield. That's a thesis. One could at least hypothetically imagine a couple of World War II experts disagreeing over the strength or weakness of that claim. And of course, in order for a thesis or argument to be strong, it has to be backed up by some combination of reason and evidence. So naturally, it's at levels two and three, truth and meaning, where in history you start to have things like theses and arguments and narratives and meta-narratives. And you're well beyond just simple collections of trivia factoids, and that you begin to have things like schools of thought emerge on a particular topic. You have smaller schools of thought about specific issues and questions and subjects, differing takes on, I don't know, what caused the Industrial Revolution, what were its overall effects, things like that. You might also have larger kind of meta schools of thought on even bigger picture questions, the most notorious in history being something like the classic great man theory versus social trends and forces theory. Larger meta-schools of thought would be things like Marxism, postmodernism, whatever. They transcend particular subject matter areas. So much of the general public's exposure to and understanding of history stays at level one. And what they do get of level two is often quite propagandistic. And to turn to academic historians, they're definitely more sophisticated than that. But still, in our time at least, it seems to me that most academics spend most of their time and work and attention at levels one and two, fact and truth, and little or none at level three, meaning. In large part, I think this is because most academics in any field, not just in history, and not just in the so-called social sciences, but in everything, most academics are specialists and not experts. And let me explain what I mean by those terms in this context. A specialist is someone who knows one very, very specific subject area very, very well in great detail. I study late 17th century French gender norms and roles. Something like that, right? Very specific. An expert, by contrast, has a broader range of knowledge on a broader topic. They may not have the depth of knowledge on any micro-topic or niche topic that a specialist has, but they're also less tunnel-visioned. They still have deep knowledge, but across a much wider field. 
Something like, for example, I study modern European history, right? Rather than, I study late 17th century French gender roles. And of course, an expert might have even broader conceptions of their field of knowledge than that. It might be, I study human history. I study world history. I study modern world history. Whatever. And another characteristic of an expert is that unlike the specialist, they're better at communicating ideas and information from their field to the intelligent and curious among the general public or laymen who are not professionals in that field. For example, let me give you an example of an expert in a field other than history. Neil deGrasse Tyson. There are plenty of other astrophysicists, maybe even some who are more expert than Neil deGrasse Tyson on specific things. And certainly, I'm not qualified to make that judgment call. But I'm sure there are other astrophysicists out there who are more accomplished or knowledgeable in some things than he is. And yet, he's the only living astrophysicist most of us can name at the drop of a hat. Why is that? It's because he's so good at talking to the general public. So as a result, he's the only astrophysicist that most people can name. So anyway, in history, I strive to be an expert, not a specialist. Now, whether or not I achieve that goal is, of course, in the eye, or rather the ear, I guess, of the listener. But that's at least what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to be. Now, I think that to advance and spread human knowledge, we need both experts and specialists, because they perform different roles. Specialists, because of their narrow focus, are often at the forefront of uncovering new facts. And some of them, at least, are also pretty good at extrapolating truths from those facts, though many aren't even good at that, because many of them have such hyper-specialization that they have tunnel vision. But some of them are able to abstract some pretty good truths out of their facts. But there's an opportunity cost both in terms of time and in terms of skill set, that most of the time prevents specialists from also being experts. And the expert then performs the role of mediating between the specialists and the intelligent laymen who are out there in the general public. Among other things, the expert is able to synthesize the work of many specialists together. And in general, is more likely to be skilled at figuring out how to draw compelling truths out of the facts than is the specialist themselves. And the expert is almost always guaranteed to be far superior to the specialists at sketching out or hypothesizing meaning from those truths. Now, academia in its modern form, particularly since the coming of things like PhDs and so-called professionalization, of academia, beginning in 19th century Germany, and then radiating out from there to the rest of the world. Modern academia has almost always tended to shower the most prestige and awards and so on on the specialists. And while some experts have an academic background, those experts very often, once they acquired their basic cred within the Guild of Academia, turned their career path on a way that increasingly steps outside of the rigid straitjacket of formal academia. Now, like I said, I think we need both experts and specialists 
but that one of the many, many reasons why academia is so dysfunctional is that it is so heavily slanted to favor the cultivation of specialization, even to the extreme of what we might call hyper-specialization or over-specialization. And as a result, one of the many effects of this is it tends to keep things mostly at level one and two in terms of fact, truth, and meaning. Anyway, done with my tangent on experts versus specialists, let's talk about the relationship between objectivity, ideology, and history. So here's the definition of objective as an adjective that I'm using in this context. Not influenced by personal feelings, interpretations, or prejudice. Based on facts. Unbiased. Whenever I hear someone say something like, History should just be totally objective and non-ideological and the facts should speak for themselves. It just drives me fucking nuts, to be honest with you. Because to me, it's showing that the speaker either doesn't know what words like objective, ideology, and history really mean. Or they do, but they've never sat down to really ponder the implications of the meanings of those terms and how they relate to each other. And that the person saying this, in a classic Dunning-Kruger way, is pronouncing with absolute simplistic certainty on a set of subjects on which they've obviously not done any serious thinking or reading. Those people are always the ones that are the most certain. Nobody is more certain they're right than the complete ignoramus. To me, demanding or expecting objective history means you're demanding or expecting only very superficial history. The history that stays at level one. That's basically a timeline and some key terms. Or it could be that you're so unselfconsciously drowned in your own ideology and subjectivity that those things are invisible to you. And what actually is your ideology and subjectivity you believe is Objective, you believe, is the truth with a capital T. To me, demanding objective history is just as stupid as demanding objective news. There's no such thing and there never could be. Think about the news, right, which is supposed to be a depiction of current events in the same way that history is a depiction of past events. It's not just at the end of the process where a reporter is, say, writing up their story and slanting things one way or the other that things like ideology and subjectivity entered into the process. It was there from the very beginning. When the reporter, and perhaps in consultation with their editor or whatever, decided what story was worth looking into and reporting on in the first place. In other words, when they were making the judgment call of what does and doesn't constitute news. Because, of course, at any given time, there are far too many potentially important things happening in the world, or even in your town, to cover all of them. And that ideology and subjectivity influenced those choices. And that it also influenced the things, like when the reporter starts to decide whom to consult as sources for their story. Ideology and subjectivity also colored things when the reporter interpreted what they got from their sources and how the different pieces of information they've accumulated fit together. And yes, it does enter also, of course, at the end, 
when they're making their choices for how exactly to phrase their final reporting too. But understand that things were already subjective and ideologically colored long before they got to that final stage. And some of the subjective influences or biases, if you want to be less charitable, on a reporter or historian's work are conscious and known to the reporter or the historian. But many, perhaps even most, are subconscious. And in my mind, when someone asks for quote-unquote objective news or history, what they're really probably asking for is news or history that happens to conform to their ideology and biases. They don't really want bias-free. Bias-free can't exist. And when these people identify news or history that they like as being quote-unquote objective and true, what's really going on is that they're identifying a news or history source that lines up with their own subjective preferences, not one that actually is objective. Sometimes people who push for objective history are people who are basically scientistic and who think, A, the hard sciences are actually much more objective than they really are, and who, B, think that the degree of objectivity that is at least possible in something like, say, physics, which, like I said, isn't as absolute objectivity as the layman thinks it is, but even that the degree of objectivity that can be cultivated in something like physics can be equally cultivated in all areas of human knowledge and thought. And the term social sciences, to refer collectively to disciplines like history, political science, economics, psychology, and so on, it reveals this scientific worldview. But to me, trying to apply the approach and mindset and standards of something like physics to something like history has countless problems. I won't get into all of it here, but one of the biggest is that in most of the quote-unquote social sciences, most of the time, it's simply impossible to do anything like running a controlled experiment to test your theory in regard to a particular variable, in the same way you might be able to at least in some aspects of something like physics. So again, even acknowledging that the hard sciences aren't quite as purely objective as laymen often think they are. I would agree that something like physics has more possibility to be relatively more objective than, say, something like history. So now I'm going to define history with a little more detail than I did earlier, a little more specificity. History is a depiction of past events based on evidence, which is mainly in the form of written primary sources, meaning, of course, documents from the era that is being studied or investigated. But whatever facts you glean from an investigation don't really speak for themselves when it comes to putting them together into some sort of book or article or lecture or podcast. Obviously, the subjectivity of the historian comes in here. It simply can't be otherwise. But as with the news reporter, Subjectivity was already entering the equation even before you get to the stage of arranging your facts into some sort of whole. Subjectivity was already entering the equation when the historian was deciding what specific topic they were going to investigate. It also entered the equation when they were deciding which sources to consult. 
And then, of course, it enters again when you start to look at those sources and interpret what they really mean. So by the time you get to putting the things your research revealed into some sort of cohesive whole, subjectivity has already colored what it is you're doing eight ways from Sunday. And then it kicks in again in perhaps the most obvious way in the latter stages of putting together your findings into an article, book, lecture, podcast, whatever. Now in history, I believe that objectivity can sometimes be possible at the level of fact, and that it is a realistic standard to strive for as much as possible at the level of fact, and that it's often pretty achievable with a high degree of certainty when it comes to some of the most basic sort of yes or no, one or zero questions about which solid evidence is available. Though not always even there if primary sources are non-existent or contradictory or questionable for a particular topic. And like I said before, subjectivity already was entering into the equation when you were deciding what you wanted to look into in the first place and what sources you were going to check to find out about that. Now, as you abstract out, objectivity becomes progressively less possible and less realistic as a goal. When you get to level two, truth, and it becomes ridiculous or impossible when you get to the level of meaning. Now, subjective influences don't just come from ideology, but obviously when you're looking at something like history, or the news for that matter, ideology is one of the most profound subjective influences on the process. Now, I believe that every human has an ideology of some sort. I simply don't think you could interpret and function in the world without one. It is the lens through which you make any sense at all of the world of human activity. Now, your ideology may or may not be consciously worked out. It may or may not have a nice, neat label that ends in ism. But you've got one. At its most basic, an ideology has two components. Component one is your understanding of how the world does work. This is evaluative. How does the world work currently around you? And then the second component is your concept of how the world should work. So this is a normative dimension. And inevitably, there's always some daylight between one's understanding of how the world does work and one's understanding of how the world should work. Now, different ideologies relative to different worlds that you live in, right, in terms of time and place and society and all that, there might be more or less daylight between your understanding of how the world does work and how the world should work. But I don't think anybody would ever say how the world does work and how I think the world should work are completely congruent. I don't think any person ever actually says that or believes that or thinks that. But that's really what it comes down to at its most basic. Your view on how the world does work and your view on how the world should work. That's the foundation of your ideology. Now, some ideologies are more rigid and dogmatic than others. Some are more internally contradictory than others. Some are more coherent than others. But I really think everyone's got one. 
It's just that most people don't do any metacognition about their ideology. And so it remains kind of fuzzy, incoherent, internally self-contradictory, and furthermore, because most people have never really critically picked apart their own ideology and grappled with its contradictions and limitations and struggled to try to reconcile these things. Because of that, most people are also completely oblivious to their ideology. Because they're like the proverbial fish who doesn't know what water is. Because he's never not been engulfed in it. People who have never kind of done the metacognitive work of trying as much as mentally possible to look at their ideology from the outside. Which I'm not saying that that's necessarily 100% possible, but I'm saying it's possible at least to some degree if you're willing to work at it, but it's hard. Now, the people who are like the fish in the water who don't know what water is, these people think they're non-ideological. But in reality, they are the ones who are the most mindlessly, hopelessly captive or hostage to their own ideology because it controls one's thinking more strongly if one is unaware of its existence and influence. If you think you don't have an ideology, your ideology is completely driving you. Kind of like how the most effective propaganda is always the propaganda that does the best job of appearing to not be propaganda. A lot of its power comes from its concealment. The best trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist, right? And all that kind of stuff. Now, sometimes you hear people object to ideology as such. And I think that when people are doing that, what they're probably really doing a lot of the time is they are objecting to ideologies that are the most totalistic, fundamentalist, dogmatic, and or extremist with regard to means. Now, if you haven't listened to my episode from a little while back called The Manichaean Temptation, and you want to hear more on me differentiating extremism of means from extremism of ends, check that episode out. For the sake of time, I won't get into that particular rabbit hole in this episode. I've already got enough rabbit holes in this one, thank you very much. But ideologies that claim to literally explain everything, and or ideologies that claim dogmatic certitude, that never even admit the possibility that they could be wrong about something or have any gaps or contradictions, and or ideologues who are willing to do horrible shit in pursuit of their ideologies. Yes, if you're against those types of manifestations of ideologies, I'm with you. But if you're saying ideologies as such are all bad, well, that's an ideological claim, isn't it? That's self-contradictory. That's like the person who claims with absolute certainty to know that there are no absolute certainties. So given what I've described about the process of making history and what it really is, and what an ideology really is, I think you can see why I say that objective history is a complete pipe dream. Or perhaps a not-a-pipe dream, right? Callback, rimshot, woohoo! If you agree with me that objective history isn't really possible, beyond the level, perhaps, of the most superficial, specific factoids, does that mean we have no standards at all? In other words, are we left with absolute subjectivity and complete relativism? 
unable to rank things and to differentiate better history from worse history? Is someone who produces a factually accurate, well-documented book or podcast about something in history no better than someone who just makes shit up? I don't think so. Any more than I think it's impossible to differentiate between better and worse maps. In other words, just because there is no such thing as an objective map that functions as the truth with a capital T regarding a particular territory, that doesn't mean we can't still differentiate between better and worse maps. That doesn't mean, for example, that we can't make the distinction that if you had a map of Florida that depicted the territory as an island, shaped like an Easter egg, with a volcano in the middle of it, that that map would be inferior in most ways, other than pure whimsicalness, to a map that shows Florida as a peninsula, with a panhandle that kind of is shaped like a gun, aimed point-blank at Mobile, Alabama. Even the cheesy tourist map of Florida is superior in most ways to the imaginary hypothetical Easter Egg Island one. And of course, the serious road map is more superior yet to the cheesy map for tourists in most ways, even though the serious road map still has its limitations. And there might be some other map that's even better than that one in some specific way. So in other words, even if there's no such thing as objective history, I, for one, still think we can have some standards and ideals and yardsticks to try to separate better history from worse history. And the ideal I'm proposing here in place of objective history is what I'm calling honest history. So what is honest history? Well, at this recording, I don't have like a simple, short, one-sentence dictionary-type definition worked out yet but I can list some of its characteristics as I think about it. And some of these characteristics are going to be more obvious and simple than others. So, some of the characteristics of my idea of honest history. Honest history does not falsify or fabricate information. That should be obvious, but, you know, it needs to be said. Next, honest history differentiates clearly and explicitly between when it is presenting a straight-up fact and when it is presenting an opinion or interpretation. It doesn't hide from saying, this is my interpretation of this thing, this is my evaluation of this issue. So in other words, I wouldn't seriously say Woodrow Wilson is objectively the worst president in American history. I would say, based on my criteria and what I know of him, I am ranking him as the worst president in American history in my mind or my thinking, and then explain why. Next, honest history admits its values and ideological perspectives in an overt, above-board fashion. In other words, it makes no pretense of being objective or neutral, and it doesn't hide its ideological presuppositions and values. This is why I don't run away from saying, oh yeah, I'm a libertarian anarchist and that affects how I look at history. Like, no, no, that's, that's accurate. That's just being honest. And a lot of people who are of the principled intellectually honest left or the principled intellectually honest right hate CNN more than they hate something like Fox News or MSNBC. And the reason is because CNN makes the most pretense about being neutral and fair and balanced and 
objective and we're just the facts and all that kind of crap. And it's like, people kind of know that that's bullshit. And so in a way, the person who says like, yeah, this is left-wing news or, oh yeah, this is conservative news or what it's like, that person is more honest because they're not pretending they're giving you some sort of neutral, unbiased presentation. If such a thing were even possible, which I'm saying it's not, of course, but. So I would say run like hell from history that claims to be completely unbiased and objective and all that kind of crap. Honest history, though it does have a perspective and an ideology, it does not deliberately leave out information that might contradict or call into question some of the author's overall narrative or beliefs. In other words, it makes a conscious effort to try to avoid cherry-picking. So, for example, if I come across in my research for Woodrow Wilson, instances where he did something I think was really good, I'm not going to leave those out of the story. In fact, I'll probably put a spotlight on them and say, look, here's some complicated stuff. Here's, I'm generally not a fan of Wilson. I generally think he did mostly bad stuff. But look, here's this one thing he did that I think was great or that I agree with or whatever. I'm not going to leave out the things that call into question or contradict a larger point that I'm trying to make. Next, honest history admits what cannot be known for certain. And it clearly and explicitly admits when it is speculating or theorizing beyond what the known facts and evidence can actually prove. So, for example, if I start to speculate about a possible conspiracy behind the murder of William McKinley, I'm not going to pretend to know things I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to have certainty that I don't have. I'm going to say, look, here are some of the circumstantial things that look kind of fishy to me and why I think it's at least possible that there's a larger conspiracy at work here. But please understand, I'm going beyond what can be definitively proven. And I'm not going to pretend that I know things I don't know. Or to take another example, I think that there was a conspiracy involving Teddy Roosevelt in the Office of Naval Intelligence and some Cuban insurrectos and whatever, to blow up the main as a false flag. I believe that. Do I have the overwhelming definitive proof beyond a reasonable doubt? No. I have a lot of suspicious circumstantial things that when you add them up look pretty fishy. But I'm not going to pretend I have a smoking gun when there isn't one. Next. Honest history is transparent. It shows its work. Meaning, of course, it's always open to revealing and explaining its sources, its methods, and explicitly going through its reasonings, the how and why it arrived at its arguments. Honest history tries to avoid common logical fallacies as much as possible, while realizing that nobody's perfect at avoiding them all the time, but nonetheless, trying to avoid things like the straw man, the bandwagon, the false dichotomy the correlation-causation fallacy, appeals to authority, appeals to tradition, all these sorts of things. Honest history tries to avoid those things in its reasoning and its arguments as much as possible. Next, honest history, like honest science, proceeds always with the understanding that all knowledge is provisional. Hopefully, it's based on the best evidence and the best reasoning available at any given time, but that it's always potentially subject to change in light of new evidence or in light of having any faulty reasoning corrected. And overall, and many of what I've already mentioned are specific manifestations of this bigger maxim, but overall, 
honest history always strives to operate in good faith with its readers or listeners or whatever. It is not trying to manipulate them. Everything is overt, above board. Everything is explained, etc. Now, true honest history has different points of view, different schools of thought, different ideologies, and different arguments. To me, the question of whether a particular work of history or a particular historian is or is not honest is independent of that person's ideology or school of thought. Potentially, there could be someone who's got a very different ideology than I have, but have met my criteria for honest history and I can respect them and their work. Meanwhile, there could be a person who's ideologically much more similar to me, but looking at their work and how they do it, I might come away saying, yeah, that's not really honest history, for whatever reason. Very importantly, honest history may be trying to persuade its audience of something, but it isn't propaganda. Now, some history obviously can definitely be propaganda. Much of the history out there floating around in the world is propaganda, I believe. But I'm saying here that part of what defines honest history as I mean it is that it's not propaganda. So here I've got to briefly mention what I think are some of the key characteristics that define propaganda as a specific thing that differentiates it from other material that might be just trying to persuade you or convince you or educate you about something. To me, there's specific things about the word propaganda in its modern usage that define it from other things. It's not just something designed to persuade you or to make you think differently about something. There's particular characteristics that mark out propaganda as a special category. It's true, propaganda is something that's trying to get you to think and or believe and or act in a particular way, but there's more than just that. I could be making an honest and overt case to persuade you of something and not be doing it in a way that's propaganda. For example, let's say I'm making a well-reasoned argument based on evidence that eating less sugar would be good for your health. It's very possible for me to do that in a way that's not propaganda. But I could be making the same argument that you should eat less sugar in a way that absolutely is propaganda. To me, what differentiates propaganda from other methods of informing or even persuading is in the method or the means, not in the ends. The ends might still be the same, trying to affect someone's thoughts or beliefs or actions. But propaganda has specific means that I object to. The first of which is propaganda properly defined is always to some degree deceitful and manipulative. And if it's not, it won't be effective. In other words, propaganda is trying to manipulate you while concealing the fact that that's what it's doing. This is why the most effective propaganda is that which does the best job of passing it off as something else. News, information, history, education, entertainment, whatever. By the way, the fact that I'm calling it deceitful doesn't mean I think that all the content in a piece of propaganda is necessarily untrue or unfactual. As I've mentioned in other episodes of this podcast, a lot of the most effective propaganda contains mostly correct facts. But other techniques are used to mold the propagandee's perception of the meaning of that information. Things like cherry-picking and lying by omission, for example. So propaganda has this element of manipulation, this 
dishonesty of it's trying to manipulate you while not letting you realize that's what it's doing. Related to that, propaganda isn't just manipulating, it is consciously and deliberately trying to do that. That is, the propagandist, in putting together the piece of propaganda, is deliberately trying to manipulate. It's not an accident or a side effect. It is their goal when they're creating the work. They are positively working to manipulate the consumer's belief without the consumer realizing that that's what's happening. Next, propaganda relies on emotional appeals and manipulations, often to the recipient's subconscious, in order to end run around people's critical thinking capabilities, such as they are. Lastly, propaganda tries to manipulate people in such a way that benefits the interest of the propagandist, or the interest of the propagandist's employers if he's working on behalf of someone else. Now, those benefits might be monetary or material, but they aren't always in that form. So long story short, to me, honest history can't be propaganda. And propaganda can't be honest history. So in wrapping this episode up, I just want to say that honest history to me is an ideal to continually strive for. Like all ideals rightly understood, it's not a destination. It's not an endpoint. It's sort of a horizon that you aim at, that you never actually reach, but that still guides you in the direction you want to go. Now, obviously, this is all just a snapshot of where I'm kind of at in my thinking on honest history as of April 2020. Always provisional, always potentially subject to change in the future in light of new information or new thoughts down the road. And if you made it this far all the way through this episode, I just want to thank you for taking the journey with me. And I'll tell you, this was a surprisingly difficult episode for me to do. And I hope I didn't completely lose you. And that this didn't come across as sort of pretentious, meta-meta, navel-gazing, or whatever. I was really wrestling with a lot of deep thinking on this one, really trying to put into words lots of things I've been grappling with. So I hope you found this episode valuable in some way, and that it gave you some things to wrestle with too. Definitely, I'll admit, a fair amount of this episode is me kind of thinking aloud things that I've been thinking in my head or in some cases that might have just been pinging around in my subconscious for quite some time. So while working on this episode was painful, it was a cathartic kind of pain. And I hope I didn't get all the benefit of that pain. I hope you got some of it too. And I'm not kidding when I say this was a hard episode for me to make and it was painful. Some of you may know this, that chess masters, when they're really intensely playing a game of chess, are oftentimes sweating and getting physically fatigued, even though, to all appearances, they're just sitting in a chair looking at a chessboard. And we now know that their metabolism actually goes up, and they're actually burning extra calories because they're thinking so hard. And that actually often happens to me when I'm really hard at work on a Dangerous History podcast episode in some way. I'll oftentimes suddenly start sweating or, you know, otherwise have feelings of getting physically worn out as if I had just been like running a bunch of miles. And that this particular episode, for whatever reason, was even a little bit more in that regard than most. So, creation of something is always an act 
that involves some amount of pain and suffering, even if it's a labor of love, even if it's something you really enjoy doing and want to do, and that you find intrinsically valuable, there's still always a certain amount of pain and suffering. Go read The War of Art or something like that if you need to. But this episode did, for whatever reason, contain more than the usual share of it for me. So I really hope it wasn't in vain, and that as someone like Stephen Pressfield will tell you, the amount of resistance one has to overcome in creating something is usually proportional to how valuable the final product ends up being, both to the creator and to the audience. So fingers crossed. And as I wrap up, I just want to share one more quote by Friedrich Nietzsche on creation. Quote, What saved me then? Nothing but pregnancy. And each time, after I had given birth to my work, my life hung suspended by a thin thread. End quote. Well, here's to the next 200 Dangerous History Podcast episodes. Stay safe and stay sane, my friends. enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level. 
and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.